This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. This week I am welcoming a very special guest to the podcast, a British low flute specialist who has developed an international reputation for her very innovative work. Her multifaceted career encompasses solo and chamber music, collaboration recording, composing, arranging, editing, performing, low flutes, kingma system and baroque flutes. Yeah, baroque flutes, we're even going to talk about that later. She's an arranger, composer and educator. In fact, I don't think there's much she can't do. Her career to date has been focused on collaboration and developing the dialogue between the composer, performer and flute maker in order to extend and enhance the repertoire. She has premiered several hundred works in the UK internationally as a soloist and a chamber musician, as if there is a boundary, which we'll find out there isn't. She'll push and pull artistically to see what she can develop from breaking that boundary. She is artistic director of Rare Scale, and her original works and arrangements for flutes are published by Tetractis. Oh, she, she's going to laugh at this because I always fall over. Tetractis Publishing. Tetractis, that's it. Editor of Pan, the Journal of the British Flute Society. Ladies and gentlemen, my podcast friends, may I proffer a very warm welcome and doff my cap to the lovely Carla Rees. Carla, welcome. Yay. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me here. It's oh, great to talk to you. My pleasure. You've been requested by quite a few of our podcast listeners as being of That's interest, nice of which you obviously are. That's very kind of them to request me. Hello, everyone. Thanks <laughs> for that. <laughs> How has this very strange year to date it's very, changed? It's very strange. Yeah. How has it changed uh, the way you make music? Ah, that's a good question. It's It's been very difficult, I think, for everybody. I mean, we're all feeling it, all of us performers that can't go out and perform. It's kind of a bit of an identity crisis in a weird kind of way. Um, because, you know, if you're a performer and you're not performing, what are you? Um, that's a bit of a deep question to start with. But, you know, that's that's something that we're, we're all kind of having to deal with. Um, of course, creative people find solutions. So I've been doing quite a lot of slightly perhaps unusual projects. I've turned my little room here into a recording studio and I've been recording various projects. Um, the most exciting one of those actually has been a relatively recent development where I was recorded, um, I was playing here and my sound was recorded in America with a computer musician who was also improvising with me live. So that was a pretty amazing thing. And we're going to do actually more of that later on today. Um, so we're working towards hopefully we can make an album that way, which is pretty amazing to see what the technology can do. Um, so, you know, it's just we have to adapt somehow if we want to play. OK, maybe we can't play in front of audiences right now, but there are still ways of being creative and making music. Can you just rewind a bit? <laughs> Improvisation, the sound going in. There's a lag, isn't there? Yeah, it's a very complicated sort of setup that we use. Um, and it's with Scott Miller, who's I've been collaborating with him for a very long time. We made an album together a few years ago. Um, he's a computer, uh, well, he's a composer and a computer music performer. So he's an improviser as well. And he has a whole setup in his studio in, in Minnesota, which is basically using multiple computers that are all speaking to each other, working together. Um, so we've got various different connections that are happening at the same time. So my sound is going to him through one connection. His sound is coming to me through another connection so that you don't have so much of a delay problem. Um, and then we're basically improvising together in real time. Wow. <laughs> You're looking stunned. Yeah, it's just that, um, yeah, it's improvisation, especially in the field that you work in. It is it's compl it's complex. And to yeah. do it from such a distance and to be comfortable that you can make recordings, I mean, that is, uh, 
must be a lot, yes, of, compu- lot, lot of computers uh, being utilised yeah. there. There is a lot of system. I mean, it took us the first time we did it, it, took about an hour to get it all set up and running. I mean, it's not easy, um, but he's quite experienced at it now. He's sort of been turning it into a research project. So that's pretty amazing. And we're working with graphic scores. So he's created these amazing digital graphic scores, which I'm working to. And then it, with his electronics, he's got different sound sets that are kind of programmed into his software so that for each piece he can choose, he's controlling how the electronics are processing my sound. I love the idea of graphic scores because it opens up a different perspective and perception to improvisation, also to the audience. If you can project graphically behind a performer and then you can then play or improvise onto that, you get this sort of dual visual and auditory experience. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the other great thing about graphic scores is anybody can make them. So, you know, you can you can be an artist, you can be a small child, you can be, you know, literally anybody can create these scores which can turn into music then. And of course, you know, as you refine them, you get an idea of the kinds of symbols that you want to create and how you balance it on the page and how you balance it as a structured composition. But then it's all interpreted. So that's also really fascinating because different performers will interpret them in different ways. So you're talking shapes, you're talking colours, you're talking objects... Yeah, all kinds of different things, some beautiful kind of, you know, things that look almost like calligraphy. Um, I mean, it can be anything. Some lines, some some shading, some different colours. I mean, the colours are quite interesting because people interpret colours in mm. different ways. And then they've also, um, Scott's scores have all got quite interesting titles that kind of lead you in a direction. So it might be loud and soft or high and low or something like that. So then as a performer, you're looking for the contrasts within the score and then bringing those out as much as you can. Because it's improvisation, you will feel very different things to the colour blue or azure at one moment as you possibly will another moment. So everything is at that one specific time, isn't it? Yeah, and we're, the plan is that we'll do multiple recordings of each one, possibly on different instruments. But you can also change tempo, of course. You can play any speed you like. And everything that I do is being processed by the computer, so that processing is going to change according to what I play as well. So I'm kind of in a way, the more we do it, the more I'm going to learn about the types of sounds that are going to come from the computer, which makes it interesting as well, because then there's this sort of dialogue with the machine and kind of questioning how much I want to control it, how much I want to leave it open. Um, There's lots of aesthetic questions within it. It's fascinating. And how long before the two machines will be doing what you're doing? Oh, well, I'm also, that's another interesting thing. I'm doing another project which is based on machine learning with somebody else. That's with Craig Beer in Leicester. So he's written me a, a, a score, which is actually, I've got the score actually uh, it's hiding somewhere, but basically the score is a computer and it's, we've done some machine learning work. So basically I've played an improvisation, which he's then used to program a computer. So it learns how I respond when I'm improvising. And then when we do the performances, it's basically, this is, this is amazing. The computer generates a new score for every performance. And the score is generated based on what it's learned from my improvisation. And then the score, it sounds crazy complicated, but it's brilliant. Um, So the score appears, and then also there's sounds coming from the computer, which are based on my improvisations and this new, basically new creation from the computer. So we've, we've sort of essentially taught it based on data that Craig's taken from an improvisation that I did. Sounds very much like, I think it was Deep Blue, you know, the uh, chess computer that ended up beating Gary Kasparov, I think. It's almost as though the more you program into the computer, it can then sort of create, to I suppose, an algorithm, mathematical formula. Do you think it will ever get to that stage where it will be completely random? Because there's obviously no conscious learning with a computer, but it, it will be able to produce really interesting, unique pieces. I think random is easier than controlled. Um, so with these kind of pieces, there's a lot of programming that goes into it to control each of the parameters. So, for example, it's controlling how many notes come out in the score, what the max, you know, the duration of the notes, the range of the duration, these kind of things. So there's actually a lot of control in the programming, which is the compositional element. So although he's writing the piece in a way that gives the computer freedom, he's actually controlling what freedoms the computer's allowed to have, which for me is what makes it more interesting. And it's the same with composition. You know, if you have complete freedom, you've almost got too many ideas to choose from. 
So you need to kind of set some parameters and narrow it down, and that's what creates the kind of character of the... So it's the same as you know, if you've got a graphic score. A graphic score is giving you a sense of direction that you don't have if you're looking at a blank piece of paper. So it's those parameters and that kind of connection that actually makes the compositional process more interesting. That's interesting. So would you work on that premise on all the random generated performances you do, all the improvisations, would you give yourself a sort of a loose structure to work with rather than giving yourself complete freedom to go where you want to go? Um, I don't tend to think in structures necessarily, but I might think in colours or techniques. Um, oh, that's so for interesting. Example, you know, I might want to do, let's say, an improvisation that's based on a particular technique or a particular mood or a particular character. Because if you had every single mood and every single technique <laughs> and every character in one piece, it would just be, it would make no sense to anyone. It would just be too much in one go. So to give it some kind of sense of logic, it's almost, yeah, it's a framework. But I'm not thinking in terms of a, stri- a sort of strict structure where it's kind of like, right, I'm going to play eight bars of this and eight bars of that. I'm not thinking those terms. Um, but there's another piece that I did with Scott, which is a piece called Islands, which was again improvised, but it was based on ecosystemic electronics, which is basically he's using, he's got an electronic soundscape, which is based on a map. It sounds terribly complicated, but it's it's amazing. So it's basically a map of an island structure. And what happens is that he's got different sounds associated with different places on the map. And then the performance, so for example, when I'm playing it, I know what these different sounds are because we've done it so many times. I know that if, you know, in a certain area of the map, I'll hear birdsong and in a certain area, I'll hear something else. But what happens in the performance is the level of sound is actually data from the room. So it's like the actual overall volume levels in the room will change the speed and the direction that you take through the map. So, for example, if, we, if I play very quietly and the room is very still and I play lots of very quiet sounds and air sounds and multiphonics, that kind of thing, it keeps it at a very slow pace. And going at a very slow pace, you hear certain sounds. But if you go at a faster pace because I play louder or there's more activity or somebody in the room gets up or somebody starts coughing or whatever, then it changes the level of volume in the room. piece moves a little bit quicker and you lose some of the sounds, but you get some different ones. So every performance is different because it depends on the environment that you're in. But by doing that, you get this kind of really interesting thing because you've got structure to the piece. And I've got all sorts of sonic cues that I know this is, oh, yeah, we're here, we're here. Certain things happen as a framework, but within that, there's a massive amount of flexibility. So I can still change the mood and the character and those kinds of things. It's like a whodunit. You know how it's going to end, but you just don't know how you're going to get there. Yeah, totally. And it makes the performances really exciting. That's fascinating. So, Carla, has this unprecedented global time given you more inner creativity or has it lessened it? Ah, well, I was really hoping that I'd have lots of time. I kind of had this idea that, you know, everything would stop and it would be like a little artistic retreat, <laughs> that I could kind of be here and create things. And I thought, oh, I'll do some composing and I'll do some more recording and I'll do all this. I have all these sort of projects in mind, but actually... If I'm completely honest, I've been working harder than ever. (laughs) Um, And I've been doing a lot of work for my university. So most of my time has been taken up with writing new courses and marking student work and that kind of thing. So actually, in a way, well, I suppose in one way it's been less creative because I've been doing more of that work than I would ordinarily. But on the other hand, it's kind of made me sort of more determined to use the little bits of downtime I can get to do creative things. So if we look at that creativity, where is that spark located and how does it manifest itself with you? In other words, are you disciplined? I have to sit down and write this deadline or does it pop out at strange times? Because creative people, it's a very different process. Yeah, I think for me, my my constant problem is a lack of time. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's the same for everyone, but I could I could easily have, you know, 60 hours in every day and I'd still fill it with things. And I think that's partly where my creativity comes out, is that I'm not someone that can ever be bored. I've always got something to do. And I'm, I'm always juggling a million things. And I think that's kind of a really big part of it. You know, I mean, I'm always kind of a little bit too overworked. But at the same time, I couldn't really stop that because that's part of how I am. And that's I thrive on it as well. So it's it, that in itself is quite a difficult balance. If it's something like composing, I have to kind of have a really clear head to do that. So I don't get to 
compose anywhere near as much as I'd like to because it's really hard to write new music when you've got all sorts of other bits of music floating through your head all the time. So if I want to write a piece, I actually have to be really disciplined and plan it and just block out a set amount of time where I do nothing else and just compose. And the composition process for me actually mostly happens inside my head, which oh. is a bit strange and possibly unusual, but I spend a lot of time just kind of floating ideas around in my head. So when I get to the point where I'm actually composing, I've actually, I, I sort of don't really realise it, but I've done a lot of it in my head beforehand. Um, so the actual process of composing is quite quick. The kind of bit of getting it down on paper and just sort of trying ideas out. But the ideas have been kind of there for a while. Can you remember um, what's can you remember what's actually been you say you've you're in the shower or in the bath or something and this thematic is going on inside. Can you remember that twenty minutes later or half an hour later? Yeah, because it's constantly there. <laughs> like, it's like this constant stream that's there. And it's the same if actually weirdly, if I'm practicing for recitals and things like that, it's exactly the same. So it's like my my sort of subconscious mind is always practicing in the background there's always something going on so if I'm trying to learn a piece and actually I've sort of found a way of working this into my preparation for recitals but if I'm learning a piece and I'm working on a particular sort of difficult passage or something that'll be going around in my head until I figured out how to do it and then and then sometimes it's amazing because I'll you know I'll be practicing and I can't do it and then I'll go away and it'll be thinking I'll be thinking about it processing it and then I'll come back and I'll be able to do it but I think a lot of those kind of technical problems are actually more about mental processes, mm -hmm. especially with contemporary music. There's a lot of information to take on board. And I think that process of kind of mentally understanding things makes it a lot easier to play it. So that, I think, is quite an important part of my processes. So breaking out of your musical comfort zone, when did you first realise that it was fun? I, I don't know I've always been a weirdo <laughs> I've always done strange things I don't know I think uh, because you, you do been... make it fun we'll, t we'll talk about it in a moment but for many it's very daunting you know going to half t uh, quarter tones half tones whatever it is and going on to different flutes and doing lots of the stuff that you do it's very daunting but at its root you must there must have been something that just ignited that wow yeah I mean I think it's, it's an interesting one. When I was younger, when I was very, well, like when I was a kid, I used to just, you know, I don't know, write music for fun and, and arrangements. I, I mean, I was some kind of freakish child, I think, but I mean, I used to arrange, I think I did my first flute choir arrangements. I was probably seven or eight. And I think I started composing. I was probably about three when I started composing, but I wasn't like composing properly. It was just, it was a game, you know, you just sort of write music notes on a piece of paper because it's fun. So it's always been quite playful, I think. And I've always done music because I wanted to do music. I never mm -hmm. had anyone saying, you have to do this. I mean, the composing has always been really funny. It's always struck me as a bit of a, a sort of surprise, really, because, I mean, I did it because I liked it and I had fun doing it. And I remember when I was doing A-level, I had to write a piece, so I wrote the symphony, because why not? And, you know, it was just, it, it was always theoretical because no, nobody was going to play it. I mean, what? what A-level student has access to an orchestra that can play a symphony. It's not going to happen. But I was just sort of playing with these ideas. Oh, yeah, for GCSE, that was funny, because I'd met Robert Dick a couple of years before and heard him play multiphonics and things, and that was that just totally blew my mind that that was possible. Um, so for my GCSE, I wrote a flute, solo flute piece with some multiphonics in it, just for fun, just to see how that went. But it's always just been it's a curiosity. It's it, I can't, I'm interested in sound. I'm interested in how far you can what you can do with things but it's not self-consciously innovative it sounds it's very theoretical playful. but you are such a musical person even though the theory and the, and the analytics <laughs> uh, but yeah you take that aside you'd think that was be that was quite sort of cold the way you talk about the the, the, the layering of everything but everything you do is really really musical I think I'm quite instinctive. I think I've always been quite instinctive. I mean, I hear music in line. So actually, I've studied music. I understand about harmony. I teach it. You know, I, I know how it all works. But for me, it's much more about instinct. It's much more, I mean, you know, from being a flute player in an orchestra, you hear all the lines around you. And what always fascinated me was how the lines come together. And each line's got different sort of properties and colours and textures. And they combine to create something new. And I think that's really where I come from with all the sound that I do. It's about how you combine different strands of material. So I'm very 
I, I think I'm a horizontal composer. You know, lots of composers think in terms of vertical, mm. you know, harmonic planning and structures and that kind of thing. And I, I'm not like that. I'm much more instinctive. And I love counterpoint. That's that's kind of my big fascination. It's this, this idea of the lines coming together and creating something. I also love dissonance and minor keys and dark things <laughs> musically. But it's all, you know, they all, I think they all have something in common, which is this kind of interesting colour. I find that really fascinating. And so all of the explorations that I do are more about finding new colours or new sounds, or, but, but also how you can integrate them with other things and how you can learn from history as well. I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that connection, that it's not just, you know, nothing new happens in isolation. It's always connected with what's come before. And it might not be linear. It might jump, you know, different bits. Music history might connect in different ways, but we come from this tradition and it's all... Yeah, it's all about extending that and, and making stuff that's relevant for now because, you know, we have a problem with contemporary music that it's very difficult to reach a mainstream audience, of course. You know, in every other art form, contemporary culture is quite an important thing, but mm. somehow in music it's gone a bit wrong. Dissonance. Dissonance in life. We all experience dissonance every single day in various different formats. It's just sometimes we shy away with it with music. Yeah. I think the thing for me about dissonance, I had a kind of, I don't know, a bit of a eureka moment as a student. I think I've talked about this before, but I was trying to compose atonal music because that was what I was being taught to do. And I found it really hard. I think I had a sense that it didn't really, well, it didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't my language, but it was kind of part of the process that you have to go through as a composer is understanding that Yes, we can write music that's pastiche from 200 years ago, but what's the point? Because it's it was done very well then. And it can be done very well now as well, but if you're going to have an instinctive kind of natural voice, it's got to be bringing in all sorts of different things. So I was writing exclusively atonal music and it really, I found it really difficult. But the, the, the idea that really struck with me was this idea that you can have essentially different levels of dissonance in every interval. So you've got everything from, you know, unison or an octave to consonant intervals. You've got major thirds, minor thirds. They're consonant, but they're slightly different from each other. And then as you work through the different intervals, they've got a different level of tension built up within them. So actually what you can do when you're composing is play with these different degrees of tension. So you, within a very complex piece of music, you can still have this idea of tension and release, even if you don't have a tonal centre. And that, for me, was like a light bulb moment. Because it's kind of like, yeah, that's what we're playing with. That's where things get interesting and emotional is, is this idea of tension and how we play with that. So that doesn't mean that to be kind of innovative, you have to write music that's so complex nobody can understand it. I mean, there's a place for that music. But it's about just understanding that there are so many different languages that we could be writing in, that it doesn't have to just be major or minor. It could be something that's based on a tonality, but it's extending it in different ways or it's microtonal, or it's based on force, or it could be anything, it doesn't matter, but we have all this open to us. And if you understand this, this concept of tension, then you've got a framework that you can actually put with more or less any system. I love that, that uh, the use of the word tension, because if we're feeling tense, you know, there, there's feelings, there's noises, there's voices, all fighting for that, that one attention. And it's not... It's not a perfect sound. It's not a perfect melody. What's going on when you're feeling tense? When your muscles are tense, the the fibers everywhere are working against each other. And I love that analogy that it's tension, because as you say, you can release tension. And when you release tension, you get that wow. Yeah, totally. And it's that playing with that. Yeah, I think I've got it now, my dear. It's taken me a long time. I, I got it. <laughs> but you can't have that feeling of kind of like, oh yeah, everything's okay now without that no. other side of it so if, if for example you listen to a piece of you know extremely consonant music that was always consonant mm -hmm. in the end it would become for me that would become quite stressful because i'd need that kind of i'd need it to stop it would be too much of a kind of the same thing i mean there are contexts where that can work very well and it creates a new tension of its own so it's the, the tension is not from the dissonance necessarily it's how you use the intervals but also life itself isn't dissonant. You know, it's not full of beauty all the time. And yeah. uh, I think with what you do, you bring a realism with music. 
which is more 21st century life as it is, which is very much fast moving. It's very much uh, social media base which creates its own dissonance in yeah. what you're seeing and what you're feeling and what you're doing and what you become addicted to yeah for sure and I think the other thing the other side of it is that I've been playing around a lot recently with very quiet music um, I played quite a lot of Feldman um, relatively recently I did some recordings Feldman's music is amazing because it's you know, the loudest dynamic is pianissimo and the pieces might be, one of the pieces I played flute and piano was um, three and a half hours long. Um, and, you know, right at the end where you're kind of about to die, you, you have to play some top register harmonics at, you know, three Ps. It, it's a massive physical stamina trial, but it's amazing music and it's really, you get really, it's a bit like meditation. You get really into the zone and it's it takes you somewhere different. Um, and this kind of idea that, I mean, this works really well with low flutes, but the idea that there's this kind of middle zone between sound and silence. And we're in, you know, ultimately quite a shouty world. There's a lot of noise around us all the time. And so actually to be able to really focus in and use this music to be very, very quiet and peaceful and just take us to a sort of inner sanctuary in a way. Um, so, I've, I mean, low flutes are fantastic for that because it's such, you know, there's such a kind of soft tone colour in that sort of region. Air sounds, very quiet sounds. Um, there's a huge amount of potential in there to play with, but you have to be very patient because, of course, the world is moving very quickly around you. This is going to be very unfair, Carla, because we've been chatting for half an hour. Um, do you have a flute by the side of you? Because uh-huh. uh, air sounds, quarter tones, yep. um, overtones, harmonics, really uh, throw something at you. What can you... Because you very much live in the moment. When you're performing... You are present. As you say, it's like meditation. You are here now. You're conscious of the sounds you're making. And without that consciousness of those sounds you're making, you couldn't do what you're doing because your brain would be taking you in different directions. So the use of these extra sounds, what do they bring into your narrative? I think for me, it's all about colour. Especially with multiphonics. Um, I'm very keen on the very, very soft, quiet, small interval ones. You can get, you know, with multiphonics, there's lots of different variety. There are the ones that are based on the harmonic series, which are, you know, fine. They're kind of really inbuilt into the flute because the flute is so much based on the harmonic series. Um, But there are also some that you can get with very wide intervals that are quite loud. So like this kind of, I'm probably, let me go back a bit. Those kind of things, they're very stable. You've got low note and a high note, relatively strong dynamics. But then you can do some very beautiful soft ones, um, which are really kind of really help you to get inside the sound. She's playing an alto flute here, by the way. So they're kind of much softer and they're much more fragile and delicate and I think very beautiful. Yeah. And these kind of sounds, I mean, for improvising, when you're kind of playing with these kind of sounds, I mean, so for example, I might have an improvisation that's just purely based on close multiphonics. That's what I mean about setting parameters. And these sounds need quite a lot of control because you have to have a very stable airstream and the air has to go in exactly the right place. But with a bit of practice, they become like, I mean, you know, as familiar as playing B, A and G. Um, but, but you can play them with the same types of tone colour that you can play B-A and G and air sounds and all this sort of stuff. Um, so if I do, let's say, a multiphonic from an air sound. So you can even hear in the air that you've actually got two pitches, which is pretty amazing. Um, and of course, when you're amplifying that and using that to process electronics and all kinds of things, good stuff happens. But you don't need to have special flutes to be able to experiment, do you? Not at all. Um, I, I experiment on well, a <laughs> Baroque flute that I play with as well. Um, actually, that's a really interesting thing because the Baroque flute is almost the opposite of a Kingmas system flute in the sense that it's you just know, holes. It's six <laughs> holes. Yeah, six holes in a key. But of course, the first thing I do when I get a Baroque flute is think, well, can we do any multiphonics on it? Oh, that's a lovely yeah, sound. Which is, yeah, 
it's amazing um so that's you know this is by no means a special flute in that sense um it's a flute and that's all that matters it's not about how many keys you've got obviously if you've got more holes to play with it's it's about the ventilation the more holes you've got the more you can you know you've got different fingering options um so the the thing about the baroque flute is it's only got six holes so you haven't got a hole for each of the semitones for example um and actually that's one of the things i find really fascinating is actually talking about the contemporary and the tradition is how the chemo system flute links to the baroque flute which sounds like a crazy idea but Essentially, on a Baroque flute, you've only got six holes, so you don't have a hole for each semitone. So the way you would create some of the semitones is by basically changing the fingering of one of the normal notes. So if I take an example, um, well, the first time I played a Baroque flute, somebody said, if you if you just you know play the scale, you get a D major scale. So good. All nice. Uncover one hole at a time, D major scale. So I said, right, that's great. So I know how to play F sharp. How do I play F? And they said, well, you have to play F sharp, but you cover an extra hole. So an F is this. So I played an F sharp and I played an F and they sound exactly the same. <laughs> and the reason for that is that an F is essentially an F sharp. Um, but all you're doing is flattening an F sharp as much as you can and then trying to make an F. So you have to control it with the breath. You have to control it with the air stream. And eventually you can get an F, but you have to modify the position. And there are quite a few notes like that on a Baroque flute. So then when you go to the next stage of flute history, you get to the Burm, well, I mean, miss out a few levels, but you get to the Burm system flute that most people play on now. And that's got a hole for each semitone. So we're kind of up a level, which is fantastic. So, you know, we've got a hole for each semitone, so that's brilliant. But if you want to play the notes in between, what do you do? And the answer is, so if I, if I do it, um, um, so let's say I wanted to play a quarter tone lower than an E on a normal, let's say it's a closed whole flute, this one isn't, but let's say it was, the only option that I would have would be to play an E and then flatten it as much as possible. So then you put down a few foot joint keys and you go down a quarter tone. It's exactly the same process that you would do on a Baroque flute to make a semitone. But because we've got more holes, we can then reduce the intervals. So then you get to the Kingmaster system flute, which has a hole for every quarter tone. Um, so then we don't need to do the adjustments that you would have to do. So on a normal flute, you would have to make these adjustments with the air the same way that you would do to play an F natural on a Baroque flute. So it's really fascinating that it's basically the same history and it's the same system, but it's just getting more refined as we go along. But we've got more holes to play with. And because we've got more holes, we can do more with it. And I would say the Kingmar system, when you get the chance to play it, it is so logical. It's frighteningly logical. And even if you're not into extended techniques, it gives you so much more. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's about the holes. I mean, everyone calls it a quarter tone flute, which it is, but it's, that's only a little tiny part of what it's about. Um, you know, for example, a Baroque flute isn't equal temperament. I mean, it's hard to actually define what temperament it is, but every single Baroque flute has a slightly different scale. And every single one has some stronger notes, some weaker notes that, you know, some, some flutes will very happily play a top F, some won't. There'll be, you know, various differences between them. Um, and the thing is, with all these differences, they've all got their own characters. Um, the interesting thing is when you've got lots of holes on a flute, you can start playing with different fingerings that give you those different characters. So you could potentially use an equal temperament Kigman system flute to try and mimic a maybe, um, I don't know what system, well, just intonation, I've done that on the alto flute, um, played a piece in just intonation. So it's not equal temperament, but it's against a drone, so the tuning has to be absolutely perfect. Um, but because I've got the extra leeway with the extra holes, it means that I've got lots of space to do that. And yes, it's a contemporary piece, but there's no reason why you couldn't use it for rock music or anything. It's it's not just about playing contemporary techniques. That's just part of what it does. And that's the thing with contemporary techniques. It not only improves your general musicality by heightening awareness of each note, which is so important. And you as a, a a professor and educator will be trying to get that over to people is that you're just not playing a blob with a stick on a on a score 
you've got you're playing a each note has a personality and each note has fine variations of tuning which you're trying to heighten awareness of so how can flute players totally begin to explore the flute away from the normal classical music scale and study construct i think the first thing is be curious that's really important and also be a beginner I think one of my sort of constant, I mean, I've been talking about this a lot recently in workshops and things, but I think one of my constant things is this reminder to be a beginner. Um, And I'm always reminding myself to be a beginner. So it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really matter how much you already know, you can still be a beginner. And the thing about being a beginner is you can make mistakes. And the really exciting thing about making mistakes is that you learn so much from them. So, you know, about I don't know how long ago eight or nine years ago I was a complete beginner on the baroque flute and now I'm completely in love with it and it's totally changed my life and it's a big part of what I do but also you can be a beginner with new techniques you can be a beginner with everything you do and if you approach it with that mindset of a beginner where everything's exciting and you're you know maybe there'll be some frustrations but it's kind of worth sticking with and you push it through so I think one thing about all of these techniques is that they're you know you hear people play I mean somebody like Robert Dick he sounds absolutely phenomenal with all these techniques because they're so ingrained in who he is and there are techniques that he does that I can't do and there are things that I kind of listen to him do think I'd love to be able to do that and I have this fascination if I hear people do things I can't do I want to know how they do it I'm always somebody who asks why it drives everybody nuts it's like you know I always want to know why it happens how it's possible like what you do um But there's also um, certain things that I find quite interesting is that um, we all have individual bodies that work in a specific way. So some of these techniques involve using the body in different ways from what we're used to. So there's sometimes a mental block that you have to get through. Um, So something like circular breathing, um, you have to be able to get through the mental block of breathing in and out at the same time. Um, There are other kind of slight weird physical things that you have to do sometimes um, where if, for example, if I'm teaching someone to do something, they'll say, oh, that feels really weird. And that's that's a kind of, you know, totally human response that you have to break through sometimes. And it might be something really simple, like if you're playing multiphonics, you have to put your fingers on different keys than the ones that you were taught, of. you know, you, you always use your first finger to play B. Um, it's not the case if you're suddenly playing multiphonics. You might want to move the fingers around. You might use a mul- one finger on multiple keys. You might even press three keys at the same time with one finger. So, you know, there's a little bit of having to be flexible with the brain, which is, you know, can be a bit of a challenge. And I think it's also about exploring, finding your voice, because for me, all these sounds are all additional things that become part of my voice. Um, so improvising is something I think everybody should have a go at at some point. And I know it's terrifying for a lot of people to start with. Um, and I would always say the way to start is to do it when nobody can hear you. <laughs> like find a little place where you're on your own, like in the middle of a field somewhere or whatever. But just and, and literally just start with one note and just explore that one note. Think about how, how can you change that note? What happens if it becomes an air sound? I mean, air sounds are another one, actually, another potential mental blockage at the beginning, because mm-hmm. we're so used to this very focused airstream that to have to open that out, it's like for some people, that's a big leap. So, you know, start play play a note, turn it into an air sound, bring it back again. Then maybe change an articulation. Or, but there's so much you can do even just with one note and then venture out a little bit and come back to that note. So that it's never a sense of, you know, we always have this worry about, you know, what what shall I play? I mean, I, the number of times someone said, go on, play something. And my first thought is, oh, no, what shall I play? And then I'm completely paralysed. And, you know, I've got lots of pieces in my head and I can improvise, but, you know, it'd be quite a normal reaction to just sort of be like, oh, what should I play? I don't know what to play. Um, Which is, again, another one of those barriers that we have to leap over. Um, So I think it's worth being comfortable with that and getting used to just sort of pick up a flute and play a few notes. I remember when we last met, Carla, you were saying, we're having a a chat over coffee and we're just casually talking about improvisation. And I think you said, but if you play a B, do you really know what a B sounds like? Because there's so many fluctuations of variations of that B that we don't listen to, we don't pay attention to. And if only we did and we explored that, would our general musicality and our flute playing improve? Yeah, I mean, I think the more critically we can listen, the better. Um, And I think, I mean, that's one thing I get 
from having played microtones for the last 20 years, the sense of intonation that you get from that is amazing. Um, there's a perception that quarter tones are tiny, but actually I don't think they are. I have a real problem now playing normal chromatic scales because I feel like I'm missing <laughs> half the notes out. But, you know, I mean, a quarter tone... tiny intervals that you no. can't hear they're all separate notes and they're not out of tune <laughs> they're out of tune in a particular context I mean of course if you're playing a piece in F major you wouldn't put an F chord to sharp in it's all about context but these sounds are very pure distinct sounds they're just additional notes and the thing is when you get used to listening to those additional notes and making them in tune and in tune can mean lots of different things if you can get those notes in tune and you've got that control, then of course that applies to everything else. So you hear a beautiful chord and you can really get the tuning right because you've got the control to do it. Yeah, tuning, intonation is another one of my favourite topics. <laughs> because because what do we mean by in tune? It's, it's entirely based on the context it's in. So in tune might be equal temperament. But the thing is, if you're playing with a piano and the piano is playing lots of overtones, they're not going to be in tune with equal temperament. So if you're playing, I did an experiment actually with one of my students a while ago, but if you've got a big chord on the piano with a low fundamental and the flute's playing a high note, do you tune to the equal temperament high note or do you tune to the overtones of the piano so that you're in tune with the chord? Oh, because they can be quite different. Yeah. My gut feeling would be to go with the chord, but I'd imagine you'd be to go with the other. No, mine would be absolutely to go with chord. Um, but the, the trouble is that if you do that and then you play the, that note with the actual note, it's quite a difference. But that's that's a kind of, you know, just a small little example. But, you know, if you're in a flute choir, do you play in equal temperament because the instruments are in just um, in equal temperament? Or do you play in just intonation and get all the harmonics beautifully in tune? You know, we have that choice. So what in tune means is what system are we working to? How are we thinking about it? So being able to play in tune is about being able to be flexible. And the way that you learn that flexibility is through listening, but also a lot of extended techniques can really help with that. Because if you've got the embouchure control to play multiphonics and to change balance between them or whatever, you've got a lot more muscle strength that you can use for your intonation. I think for anyone listening, the great thing about we're doing this via a Zoom call is that when you're talking about this, you light up. Your face lights up, you have this big smile. And I love the fact that you said, be a beginner, almost be a childlike, explore. Because yeah. when you do, you're not, as you say, you're not afraid of falling over. And your description of sort of multiphonics, uh, quarter tones, eighth tones, whatever it is, it's like looking at a color palette, isn't it? You haven't just got five shades of green or five shades of blue. You have this gradual change from light to dark. And all you're doing is you're enabling flute players to find those little shades in between that offer so much difference. Yeah, and I think I think making mistakes is really, really important. You know, we, we live in this world of perfection, <laughs> sort of ideally. You know, think about the number of times we hear music as a recorded entity where it's been edited and it's been made perfect. Um, you know, the level of professional performers... You know, you go and hear performances in concerts and the expectation is it's going to be pretty mm. much perfect. But people make mistakes all the time. And actually a big thing about professionalism is how you adapt to that. How do you, how do you live with that? How do you make it so that if you make a mistake, it doesn't destroy the performance? But it's also, I mean, for me as, an, as a teacher, I think the biggest thing I would encourage anybody to do is make mistakes. Because, you know, how, to, how many times do we do a performance and we remember the wrong notes, but we mm -hmm. don't remember the right ones? And if we can harness that and learn from that, rather than dwelling on it and feeling kind of totally miserable and beating ourselves up about it, but if every time we make a mistake, it's a learning experience and it's a chance to get better, then making mistakes is a positive thing. And I think there are loads of situations where actually just trying things, getting it wrong, it's, it's almost like a research approach that you're testing things all the time. That's, that's basically how I look at pretty much everything I'm doing. It's sort of trying things out, testing them, see what works, see what doesn't work, see what I can make better. Um, sometimes you hit dead ends. Sometimes there are certain things that, you know, like circular breathing, for example, it's something that I will probably never conquer. 
and that's purely because I have asthma and I can't breathe in through my nose half the time. So that's, you know, there's no point in me spending, you know, a long time working on it, although I have learned the mechanisms of it. So I've still, I've still sort of figured it out and spent time practicing it, even though it's, it's unlikely that I'll use it in performance. But, you know, there are all these techniques, it's useful. And the more we can play with them, the more knowledge we have and the more techniques we've got as performers. And then we have the choice about how we use them. And that's the really important thing. You can have as much technique as you like, but it's about what you do with it. You know, I'm not interested in hearing technically perfectly polished performances if there's no emotional content. You know, it's, it's not about being a machine. It's this human element. And, you know, even when I'm working with computers, the bits that make it interesting are the bits where maybe it does something unexpected or it's a bit, you know, the programming goes wrong or something. That's the fascinating bit. It's not the perfection. You don't, I mean, you know, perfection's all well and good, but the human element is the interesting thing. And I think this is where all the trial and error stuff is really important. And if you've made mistakes, then you know how to get out of them as well, which is also really useful. So if you, if you try playing a multiphonic and it doesn't work, I often think it's quite useful to push it almost as far as you can in, in the reverse direction of where you want it to go. Because if you know what not to do, it's a lot easier to remember what to do. And and just having the space to explore, I think that's that's what real creativity comes from. That's what we thrive with. I love that space to explore. Perfection doesn't exist. Take pleasure or no, not take pleasure, but use a mistake. And a mistake, as you said, is a, a perception of doing something wrong. Uh, but if you flip it over and you say, okay, there's something I can learn from that, that it's actually going to make something better. Now, all this wisdom you're building up, you put it into your university life. Tell me about your university life, because it seems to have taken over the Carla that we used to know. Yeah, it has a bit. <laughs> um, I'm sort of hoping that's slightly temporary, but... Um... Yeah, so I run a distance learning music degree course at the Open College of Arts. And until recently, we were, I think, the only distance learning music degree. The OU has one as well, but that, that's been in various changes recently. So it kind of, they had a full music degree, then they withdrew it, and now they're bringing it back. But of course, now everybody's online, at least temporarily with all the universities having to adapt. But yeah, so I run this course, which is um, it's the Open College of the Arts. Is a, um, it's a registered charity. And the whole kind of ethos behind it is providing people with access to education that maybe wouldn't have ordinarily had it. So it's an open access course, which means that the entry requirement for a music degree is grade five theory. Wow. Um, and if you don't have grade five theory, we have a foundations course, which you can do to get to that level and get the basics. And it's kind of amazing because what we do is the courses are written in such a way that by the end of the degree, it's absolutely the same level as any other degree around the country, because it has to be. I mean, if you're offering a music degree, it has to be of that standard. But it means that if for whatever reason somebody didn't have a chance to study music, They've got a place to go and do a music degree. And all the students can start at any point. So there's no, we don't have fixed cohorts or term times or any of that. You start whenever you want. Everyone studies on a one-to-one -one basis. And we have time limits for each of the courses, but basically you can study part-time so you can be working full-time. We have quite a few students that have caring responsibilities so they can do that and still be studying for a degree. Uh, we have quite a few instrumental teachers who haven't got a degree that can be working at the same time. So it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's an amazing sort of ethos, really, the fact that we can bring people in and give them an opportunity. And our students are really amazing. I mean, we have a massive broad range. I mean, we've had everything from 18-year-olds to, I think, 80-year-old students. So it covers all the ages. And we've had, you know, retired university professors, current university professors on different subjects. And then people that have been in amateur ensembles and, you know, have always loved doing music but have had careers doing something else, you know. And then we also have 18-year-olds that come in that want an alternative way of studying, maybe people with disabilities. Um, so we, we try and build in as much accessibility as well into the course. And that's something we're still learning about. I learned so much from the students um, and, and trying to make it so that it does fulfil their needs. So it's an amazing thing to be doing, actually. Um, and we're part of UCA, which is a big art school, well-known, well-established university. So we've got all of their um, support and backing and access to their 
library and that kind of thing and their recording studio and their music department there that we work very closely together so yeah it's pretty amazing accessibility nowadays is almost the number one uh driver because as you rightly say there's so many people that are carers so many people that have physical disabilities so many people nervous and the opportunity you're providing is seems to me pretty unique. How do people find out more about this, Carla? Um, well, we've got a website. There's a lot of information on there. Um, and actually on there, I think we that people are very welcome to contact me as well. Um, if you go through the website and contact the office, then they'll put people in touch with me. But, so that's oca.ac.uk. It feels like a really nice way of doing education because especially now with the with the whole system and schools and music education is really suffering and I think there'll be a whole generation of people actually who don't get an opportunity to study music in the way that they'd like to so I think it feels kind of an important responsibility having this course um, and I set it up I was asked to design the course when we didn't have a music degree um, and we actually fought from it from within the music tutors we, we really wanted to have a music degree and they agreed to it um, so we're a very small team, but we're we're a very kind of committed team. Um, and the students are fantastic. I, I'm learning from them all the time. It's brilliant. There's a real kind of sense. They what Part of what they have to do is they kind of document their learning. There's a lot of independent learning, so they're, they're asked to go and listen to things that they enjoy listening to and write about it. Um, and we get these amazing kind of bits of work where students discovered a piece of music and I'm kind of reading what they've written about it. And so I have to go and find this piece of music and listen to it. And there's all sorts of discoveries that come from it. Um, and then we have online sessions and we sort of chat to each other and share ideas and things. It's brilliant. I just love the fact that you give almost complete creative freedom to explore along the guidelines that you've developed, the, the modules and everything. But ultimately, they're going to come out not to somebody else with a music degree that has been based around spending X amount of time on that, X amount of time on that. They're going to come out almost unique. Yeah, that's the goal. And it's it's one of my greatest pleasures, actually, seeing the students develop. Because a lot of them, when they first come in, have quite a kind of uh, traditional viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And the course was designed originally specifically thinking about people who are maybe amateur choir singers, amateur orchestral players, that they like classical music. It's a very classical music-based degree. But the whole point is that we bring them in with that and we all love that kind of music, but then we can challenge them with new ideas and we give them space to experiment and explore and create their own voices. And it's, it's such a wonderful thing to see how that develops and how they change across the degree. And because they can potentially work slowly if they want to, that gives them more creative time which I think is another really big benefit. You know, if you're working full-time on a degree in a university environment, you've got all kinds of pressures and deadlines and things that you have to do. Whereas if you're working part-time and maybe you're spreading your degree over nine years, the creative development you can make in nine years oh, is really yes. quite incredible. Yeah. So they, you can see a great transformation, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, and there's some really high-quality pieces of work come out of it. I've actually published some of them. Um, some of the pieces have been so good that I've kind of gone, oh, we have to have that, um, publish it, make it available. But there have been some incredible pieces of work. Um, I had a, a student a couple of years ago wrote this massive orchestral cantata that was it was based on um, Edmund Spencer poetry. Wow. Um, and it was phenomenal. I mean, there's some really amazing work coming out. And because we're in an art school, we get to collaborate with the other people as well. Mm. So I do a lot of work with the fine art department especially. Um, we did a project last year which was collaborative between music students and fine art students um, to get them just thrown together. They actually did the whole project online. It was brilliant. They didn't meet till the final day, um, but they were working online, collaborating together, creating new pieces of work and learning from each other's viewpoints, which was really amazing. And if anything, what the listeners should be getting out of this is imagination is all. Uh, no bridges, no confines, explore. Because often as individuals and as musicians, we don't explore possibilities. We stay within our own comfort zones. And I think in talking to you, Carla, it's it, it, the motivation, the joy in seeing your 
your just love of what you do and what you can give to students it it comes over really really strongly and on that level I'd just like to say a great congratulations on the movement again breaking down barriers with the British Flute Society it's looking fabulous the Pan magazine you're the it's really hard to take a flute an established flute society that's been built up over many many years through classical music and then with little bits of contemporary but really classically based and that's for any flute society around the world and to find a way to almost keep everybody happy and what i mean by that is the new audiences which are very much socially media driven and the older audience that are really quite traditional in their thoughts and i think what you guys are doing is fabulous oh thanks we're, we're, it's, it's a you know it's a lot of work um but there's a huge amount of energy from the council i mean lisa's doing a brilliant she's just put so much energy into it and i think it's this kind of recognition that what it means to be a flute player now is possibly quite different from what it meant to be a flute player mm. even, you know 20 years ago and it's this whole idea that I mean, we talk about classical music, but I think the more we keep it in a box, the more problematic it becomes. You know, it shouldn't be. I mean, again, it comes back to this thing about people accepting contemporary music. Music is music. It doesn't really matter what style of music it is. Um, it's music and it drives us. And as flute players, the kind of careers that flute players have now, it's not just playing, you know, classical music in an orchestra. Even if you're one of the lucky few that gets an orchestra job, you're going to be playing film music. You're going to be doing video game music, all kinds of things. And and that's the thing is that music is such a broad area and it covers so many things. Um, I mean, one of the things I'd love to do with Pan is expand it even more in terms of different genres and things. Um, so, I mean, that also comes a lot from the contributions I get from authors. So if people have articles or areas that they want to explore and write an article, then by all means get in touch and send me ideas because, I, you know, we can only do as much as we've got the base of people submitting articles. But I think it's just this whole thing about connecting all the dots. You know, we've got loads of fantastic flute teachers in this country that are working really hard. And especially recently, they've all been doing all this online teaching and had to adapt to a new system. And, you know, we should, BFS should be for them, but it should also be for the flute choir players mm -hmm. and the amateur musicians and for the professional musicians and somehow to bring all that together. I mean, it's quite a difficult job, but, you know, I think there are things that we can do and it, it does take a lot of, a lot of commitment from the volunteers that are making it happen. Um, but I think Lisa's doing a great job. The council are doing a brilliant job and they're really, you know, everyone's really working hard to try and sort of build this community. And it's working you're visible and it's always hard when, when you talk about social media because i suppose if you're going to look at say look at pavarotti for example and you look at someone like jay-z very very different one had yeah. this absolutely beautiful tenor voice and you've got jay-z that does what jay-z does if you look on the popularity levels it, it's a no-brainer you know people are looking at jay-z uh nowadays but previously it would have been pavarotti would it have been or would it have been tom jones or somebody else at that era and I think what Pan are doing is you're looking at everybody and the communication. It could be somebody that's very popular on social media. They may not necessarily be the best player, but they can draw people in because they have a fan base. And I think it's yeah. that, that acceptance now that, as you've just said, that world is very, very different and yeah. we're interconnected and everybody yeah. has a place. I think so. And I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is that popularity doesn't necessarily mean quality mm -hmm. but lack of popularity doesn't mean lack of quality absolutely either. yes and that's what's really interesting because i think there is room for everybody mm -hmm. and you know the stuff that i do is you know it's it's very much i mean i think of myself more as a researcher you know everything i'm mm -hmm. doing is researching trying new things and i know that it's not going to have mass popularity in the same way that you know, even even a kind of mainstream orchestral principle, for example, is going to have more of a kind of audience than the stuff that I do. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily any less valid. And it's this idea that you can, as the research is all about anyways, you can lead things that might influence other things. But it also works in the other direction as well. So it's this kind of 
symbiosis in a way between all the different elements that are out there and how they're all influencing. We're in a kind of weird ecosystem and we're all influencing each other in different ways. Even if it's rejecting an idea, that's still an influence. Um, and I think there's this kind of amazing linkage that way that, you know, we can't possibly put absolutely everything into a flute magazine because we just don't have the space. I mean, there's so much stuff I'd love <laughs> to put in, but, you know, we're limited to a certain number of pages and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there are all these connections and there is space for everyone. And I think, yeah, the music world is, you know, notoriously competitive, but it shouldn't necessarily mean that there's a kind of survival of the fittest. I don't think there is. I think there's room for everyone to do what they do. Um, and that's what's so amazing about music is that everybody's voice is individual and that's that's what makes it special. Yeah, and everybody has a validity. And just congratulations on what you're doing and you, Lisa, and the rest of the council members and, as you say, all the grassroots foot soldiers that are yeah. uh, really driving a an old-style flute association. Yeah. Uh, but you're not doing it. You're doing it in a very, very welcoming and encompassing way you haven't just jumped oh everything's social media now you've done it in a very gentle way sort of bringing everybody yeah. together slowly but i think you know a big part of it as well i should I, he would hate me to say this but um a big part of it is down to nick romero who does the design huh. so all the pictures in the last issue we had all the pictures of gooses and yeah. you know, all these little and the magpie pictures yes um he does all these little illustrations. He also does the design and the, the colours and the whole layout of the magazine. Um, so he works with me. But, I mean, he, that's also been quite a revolution in the way that the magazine looks. Mm. And I think if you've got this kind again, it's bringing playfulness in. It's having these, like, cute animals doing silly things. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a picture he did a while ago, which was a flute choir that were all chickens. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, it's just, who, who doesn't like chickens playing the flute? You know, it's kind of that universal appeal and it's also the sense that yeah it's serious because it's music and we care it's serious because we're passionate about it but it serious doesn't mean dry and boring serious can mean playful and you know it can there can be images that kind of make you smile and I think that's important and also you know a flute magazine doesn't just have to be full of pictures of flutes and flute players it's you could have other things um, or you could do like what we did with the July issue, which was have a photo on the cover of a very well-known flute player, oh. but in a completely different, you know, completely different viewpoint of her. Can I just say that was probably the best front cover I've ever seen on Pan. It was like, it was Vogue. It was a Vogue shot. It was yeah. a Tara Bentoven and it was absolutely stunning. Yeah, we spent a long time trying to work out how to get the layout of the cover exactly right. Uh, and we had lots of meetings about it and we we were really but I wanted it because I'm a photographer as well I wanted it to look a bit like a photography magazine or a, yeah fashion magazine rather than a flute magazine just to break all the stereotypes and you know she's a massively powerful woman she's been a huge influence on me um in fact she's the reason I played the flute in the first place so you know and and she's this kind of amazing larger than life character who's not afraid to say what she thinks um I have so much respect for her and so to be able to sort of put this picture on the cover and just make people think differently you know it's not the perception of her is she's very colorful she's always teasing me about wearing black all the time you know she's someone that's full of color her life is you know she's wearing colorful clothes and she's you know she's the total opposite of me I'm the kind of quiet one that stays in the corner um but to be able to show another side of her I think was really uh, yeah that it was very special for us to be able to do that it was a front cover that didn't have a flute on it and it, did it have a flute? I can't remember. I don't think it no. did. No, it didn't have a no, flute no. and there was hardly any text. So you were driven completely by the image. It was absolutely yeah. wonderful. So, uh, again, congrats. Thank you. Ah, oh, I think I've taken up more of your time than you had planned, Carla. That's great. It's great to chat to you. Uh, well, it's we always... could talk all day, you know this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could. It's actually better over coffee. Yeah, it is. What do you got planned for the rest of the day? I'm doing another recording this afternoon. Uh, I think we're doing, I'm not sure, I haven't decided which flute it'll be on yet, but there'll be another one we've got in America. <laughs> I haven't decided which flute. It's our one, what so a wonderful that, life, eh? Yeah, it'd be great. I, I, I want to do something. So the last time we did recordings, it was quite kind of energetic and bright and kind of, yeah, so I want to do something a bit, maybe a bit more mellow, a bit more multiphonic-y. So that, that'll be most of, yeah, that 
most of the afternoon evening but i'm in between that i'll be putting one of my new courses onto the online learning system it just doesn't stop for you does it that's the unglamorous bit no <laughs> um no but it's you know writing courses is great fun as well i mean it's it's a challenge but i like challenges um it's important to get it right that's the thing so but, check yeah. out please everybody check out carla's websites um tetractus i always get wrong <laughs> tetractus tetractus so uh, that's where there's lots and lots of music and uh, if, if if follow carla on uh social media because she often posts mini scores of some of this music and it is very creative and it's very achievable if you're really interested in that and uh obviously follow the bfs on social media and it's very very cheerful and it's very bright colors and very eye-grabbing in how it's been portrayed and also look up the university course which i think is absolutely fabulous and is accessible to all so wherever you are in the world there is no excuse because it can all be done online in your own time part-time and as we've spent the last hour discussing opening up your opportunities opening up your boundaries uh, opening up your imagination can only benefit you as an individual and ultimately music and if it's benefiting music it's benefiting others so thank you once again carla it's been wonderful we'll catch up soon for coffee well when we're allowed Brilliant. to that'd be great <laughs> so thank you once again to carla and that also for you for joining me on talking flutes this week wishing you a wonderful musical week ahead and may your quarter tones be especially fulfilling goodbye Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.